Welcome to The Art Career, a space breaking barriers by letting you sit in on candid, straightforward conversations with leading art professionals in visual arts, writing, music, theater, and film. I'm your host, Emily McElreath, and I invite you to join me for inspirational conversations with icons of our generation. We dive deep into topics like self-development, career trajectories, mental health, social justice, and the artists that have changed our lives. With each episode, our mission is to empower you, expanding your journey through the arts. Join us for new episodes every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. The Art Career is thrilled to announce its partnership with Glimpse. Glimpse Guides are a collection of luxury guidebooks with an outstanding social mission we are proud to support. Featuring the best of hotels, restaurants, activities, and itineraries for each featured city, Glimpse Guides also include recommendations and travel tips by a curated selection of tastemakers. The most exciting part of Glimpse Guides is 100% of their profits go to Give a Glimpse, which provides funding for educational travel scholarships for underserved students. What is better than that? Glimpse believe that travel is the most important form of education, and it is their mission to send as many deserving students abroad as possible. Glimpse also offers luxury trip design services with VIP perks like early check-in, room upgrades, restaurant and spa credits, welcome gifts, and more. Glimpse has quickly become our one and only travel planner. Go check them out at glimpseguides.com and tell founder Jordan Rhodes that the Art Career Podcast sent you. Meet Dana Prussian. New York's current Senior Vice President of Art Services at Bank of America. In this role, Dana helps drive the bank's art opportunities across all divisions nationally. Dana has a career that was relatively unheard of until recent years, as art product groups at large private banks didn't really exist yet. She manifested her dream role and skipped the art world ladder by studying art history and political science, then working various roles. At the young age of 28, Dana began managing billions in art collections. Bank of America's art services team was rolled out about seven years ago as a response to the many who considered art a real financial asset. It's not often that you meet a young woman who helps pave a major intersection of the art world and finance. So we're really excited to be sitting with Dana now to discuss how she did it, why she does it, and how it all works. We are also delighted to discuss her art market insights. Thank you so much for being here, Dana. How are you this afternoon? Hi. Thank you so much for having me. This is amazing. Through your education and career, you've moved between some radically different studies and roles in art and financial services. What inspired you to study art and political science? You know, it was funny. I came into Barnard 
thinking that I wanted to be an attorney and specifically work in art law. So I majored in poli-sci. I did a couple of stints working in Congress in D.C. And I think I only added my art history degree because I came into school with so many prerequisite art credits that I got to skip out of a lot of different things. But it my, felt like a no-brainer. It felt like a no-brainer. It felt super easy to get <laughs> like a second degree. So that might be my lazy response that I kind of just fell into it. But what I found was that studying art history in New York City is unlike anything else. And what I thought would just be a handful of courses as a dual degree really turned into a total love story with studying art, being in New York, and it really evolved into what I wanted to do with my career. So that was actually my next question for you that you just answered. New York really shaped the trajectory of your career within the art world, being specifically in New York. You mentioned in one of your interviews how you would, what was it, when the Met was on Monday, Monday mornings? Yeah, back in the day. Yeah. <laughs> if you lived in New York that long, you'd know that the Met used to be closed on Mondays. And when I was in college, it was closed on Mondays and my senior seminar was there. So I would meet my girlfriends for coffee, walk over to the steps of the Met before class, and then we, we would have the place to ourselves. And that's probably when I knew that I needed to formally make my way into the art world. It's just really special. You get a curator to yourself. You're walking around the museum when nobody's there but for the staff. And it was really an opportunity to learn, grow, figure out the art scene in the city and kind of make it my own. I'm not the only one, but the Met is truly my favorite place in the world. And although my career had solidified by this time, I met with Sheena Wagstaff when her offices were in the Met and it was, you know, after hours and I actually got to leave at night and it was closed and no one was there and I was walking around and it was by far the most special evening of my life, you know, it was just so magical. I too studied art history you know, being relatively very close to New York City. So I understand exactly what you're saying. We're very lucky. Yeah, it's it's really unlike anything else. There was a group at the time, I don't know if it still exists, called College Group at the Met, which I was part of. And they basically just threw like evening parties in the Temple of Dender for college students who were in New York City. And you just don't get that anywhere else. No. So really here we are. Don't. So here we are. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so Dana, you're now New York's current senior vice president of art services at Bank of America. Art's relationship with banking dates to the Renaissance when dynasties would fund art projects for the church or when artists would use their art as collateral to merchants to fund their studios. However, it's only now in this generation that the art market evolved to a degree that global financial institutions focus on the art market as an industry in its own right, rather than simply a lifestyle hobby of their clients. 
Collectors now have a range of options, both on the financing side and on the philanthropic side. What inspired the art services team at Bank of America to launch seven years ago? Look, what you said is completely accurate. The concept of art as an asset is nothing new. It dates all the way back to the Renaissance. But within the last 10 years or so, more and more people were thinking about it as part of their balance sheet, partly because uh, prices really soared at auction. We've seen a 10-year bull market at this point. People wanted to diversify their assets. And as the art world built out and we saw the rise of the art world online, those two really went hand in hand. So the bank pulled together, the bank's been lending against art for forever, 20 plus years at this point. But they saw a rise in people really considering this as part of their overall balance sheet and wanted to structure a specialty segment around it. So it made sense to put a group together. It started really just as art lending, Mm -hmm. building out a few different pillars from there. Now we have really the only consignment services offering on the street, which is really fun. That's something I run. We're obviously the largest art lenders in the world. And then beyond that, we have extensive art planning services for Mm -hmm. people that want to plan their collection, either from a tax perspective or within their family. We do next generation planning, gifting to museums, sales and use tax questions, you name it, we can answer it. And then, of course, we have an endowment arm as well. We manage about 100 different arts endowments across the country at this point. So, Dana, let's back up for a second. How did you join the art services team? I really targeted them. Look, at the time, there weren't that many players in the game. There still aren't. I have been working in private banking for a while. And my team knew that I had this background in art history. At this point, I had worked at Christie's. And anytime there was a collector client in my role, they knew to kind of tap me on the shoulder and put me in front of them. Sometimes that was meeting with an estate planner about their art collection, structuring an LLC for the artwork. Sometimes that was just like collection management, which was something that I pulled together for a bunch of clients. And I got to this place where I realized Private banking was interesting enough, Mm -hmm. but ultimately I wanted to work with art collectors full time. I kind of knew that going in, uh, but once I was in the role for a few years, I really solidified that. And while I was in my private banking role, that was really the time that this particular art services team was coming to fruition. The bank had hired two people, one who really kind of paved the way, built out the group. The other, who I still work with, was kind of number two on the team for a while. And it was really a two-man show, but they ultimately built kind of best-in-class art services. And they were getting a lot of press for it at the time. Mm -hmm. So I was reading, you know, interviews with the head of art services in Artsy. He was on Squawk Box, on CNBC all the time. And all of a sudden, people were using the phrase art finance. And that became really interesting to me, especially at a moment where I had studied art, kind of interned in the art world a little bit, but but in particular was working in finance and knew that if I didn't leave soon, 
I would probably just be in regular finance for a long time. Sure. And I wanted to specialize. Yeah. And, and you've clearly followed that passion and for you to represent that intersection is so important. So thank you for following that passion. No, I'm, I'm glad I hopped in. I think I, I tracked down the two <laughs> guys that were on the team at the time and, uh, use some connections of mine in the art world to get coffees on the book with them. They weren't hiring at the time. And when they decided to finally hire a third person, I had met them and kind of threw my hat in the ring. I actually want to touch upon just what what you said for purposes of young art professionals listening to this podcast, that necessity of having the tenacity to actually hunt those people down, get the coffees on the book. You know, I think we see a lot of young professionals in the art world who either come from family money or don't, but it seems as if it's very easy to navigate the art world. And it's not for many of us. And it truly, regardless of your upbringing, in order to succeed, takes so much effort and passion. I see a young woman like you, and it's clear from the first time we met a couple years ago, how driven you were and how important it was to solidify your place in our art world as a female. So A, thank you for being so amazing. And B, can you speak to that a little bit from an emotional or even psychological level? Well, first of all, thank you. That's very kind. The art world is a beast, quite unregulated, definitely can be a bit murky. And look, at the end of the day, when you're starting out looking for a job in the art world, it is not investment banking. You don't sign up for a track where, you know, you grind for a hundred and something hours a week, shower, sleep at your desk, do it all again. And two years from that point, either hop into private equity or a hedge fund and there's a game plan for you. That's for sure. And the art world is like charting the unknown a little bit. You definitely have to hop in and kind of figure out which piece you want to be a part of. You know, you could go to the curatorial side, the visual arts side, certainly the art market side with an auction house or a gallery, but there is no one path. And you kind of just have to get your hands a little dirty and figure out which way you want to go. And for me, I had to fail at a couple things. You know, I've worn many hats. I'm much older than you. So I've really had the time to feel out what works best and feel out like you've, I, I really think you've succeeded at doing this at a much younger age than most people do. You figured out how best to serve the art world and to use your path to really pave the way for future generations of young professionals and to show, because it's, I, I guess my point is it's not, A, it wasn't easy for you. B, it's okay if it takes a little more time. I think you're just a really beautiful example, especially within that intersection. You know, that's what was so 
inspiring to us at the art career. We love speaking with people who just just bring different talents to the table. Well, it's funny. At the end of the day, I, I don't think my place on the art services team would have been what it is today if I hadn't taken a few years and worked in finance as an analyst and then as a client advisor and kind of brought that into the table. Because most of the day I'm working with collectors and art world professionals, Mm -hmm. but a good chunk of the day too, I'm working with bankers and the ability to speak their language and build trust with them so that they say, hey, here's my client, go take a meeting with them, build out a relationship with them, go for it and have the conversation about their art is really important. Speaking of collectors, really, they now have an array of options, both on the financing side and on the philanthropic and wealth planning side. In what ways does Bank of America implement art as an alternative investment model? So we never like to talk about art as an investment. We want art to be a passion for our collectors. For the most part, we work with existing collectors. So people that are already passionate about it, in many cases addicted to it and really have found what particular genre they like or they're on a collecting path. Doesn't mean they don't change paths. We see that a lot, but they're on their own collecting journey. That said, when you get to a certain level in building out your collection, we do like to consider it as part of a balance sheet. So it's about building a balance sheet and having the right asset allocation over investing in the the right, quote unquote, art, Um, since you never know what can happen to an artist's career or a different genre, taste and preferences change. So for us, it's, it's really about considering it as part of your overall balance sheet. There was a time in my career, if I was having a conversation, and I know this isn't your model, but let's just talk about art as investment for a second. I wouldn't have even considered having that conversation. And as I mature in my career, it's very clear that both can exist, right? There can be a definite passion for art and a definite consideration as art as an investment. And I see both of those existing in the same room all the time. And that's good. That's something for myself that dialogue has shifted more than any other dialogue in my career. I'm quite passionate about it too. So I I do understand what you're saying completely. Yeah, look, there, there are definitely clients that I work with who think it's gauche to talk about art as an investment or even part of your balance sheet to consider it in that way. That's absolutely one line of thinking. It still exists, but we've seen more and more people really jump into the collecting game, thinking about this as either an eventual return or at the very least a store of value. Okay. Well, let's kind of pick this apart. In your opinion, why is it a great idea to collect slash invest in art right now? Well, first of all, this is my finance answer. It's uncorrelated to the stock market. We've had a very rocky year. And the idea that people have something fabulous hanging on their walls that doesn't go up and down based on what's happening in Russia and the Ukraine 
is a very positive thing for a lot of our clients. Beyond that, we've seen several categories really gain traction, especially over the last couple of years throughout the pandemic and and kind of really hold on. So look, we have people collecting, collecting at great speed, and they're doing it not only out of love for certain artists, but as a store of value when, quite frankly, the world is a little uncertain. That's for sure. Let's talk about price transparency. What are your thoughts about price transparency? Well, if the pandemic had one silver lining, (laughs) maybe just one, it was some of the price transparency that came about in the primary market. I mean, I work in the art world, okay? But when I walk around an art fair, it is the most intimidating thing. It doesn't matter how many gallery owners I know or, you know, dealers wave when I go by. If you want the price for a piece at, you know, Art Basel or Freeze, you're going up and you're asking about every single individual work. It's intimidating. It's kind of a bad use of time. And it's a little tedious. So the ability to hop on your phone now and see, for the most part, either a price or an estimate is really a fabulous thing. I think it's a huge time saver. It's great for transparency. It's great to do a price check when you're out in the market shopping for a particular artist or a particular work. And I think that it's changed the game for the better. It's so essential to demystify the art market at this point. And I think so many people are so over some of the older models. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's ridiculous. (laughs) Don't you remember being a young girl and even just walking into certain galleries, how intimidated you felt? And then fast forward to, you know, when I was a very young professional walking through the art fairs for the first time with clients, you know, it's, It doesn't have to be like that. There's always going to be a part of the art world that is super intimidating, Mm -hmm. right? That's that's why it's sexy and fun. Exactly. That's why it's sexy. But this helps us do our homework. Yeah. It helps us do our homework. We can get a little more intimate, you know? 100%. It helps art professionals do their homework. It helps collectors do their homework. I think that's super important to not get taken advantage of. And look, I basically live on the price database for the secondary market, Artnet changed the game for what sold at auction. I look that up constantly, especially since, you know, I do secondary market sales for my clients. But the ability to, you know, log on to an art fair from your phone, as painful as some of the online viewing rooms have been since the start of the pandemic, um, there's there's really a positive that's come out of it. And, and a lot of the technology and information that we've gleaned in the last two years, I think will stick and I think is going to be really useful moving forward. Especially, you know, I think our future is obviously so uncertain that I think it'll stick as well because who knows what's going to happen in the next decade. Mm, I mean, we are hopping back into art fairs. <laughs> but I, I think that the the online viewing rooms, um, the ability to look at everything on offer on your phone, it's just a tool that's going to go hand in hand with it. So absolutely it, it's sticking around. I hope it doesn't go away. I don't think it will. For our listeners who are new to art lending, okay, this might be a t- totally new concept for a bunch of our listeners. What does it mean to lend against individuals and their collections? 
Good question, because a lot of people think it's actually lending your art to a museum. I get that all the time. That is a concept. We often help facilitate that for clients, uh, but art lending is a completely different concept. So you have an existing art collection. You're not necessarily done building, but you've built part of a collection. And so you're, you're a living, seasoned collector. You're a seasoned collector. Absolutely. You have this collection either in your home or homes or in storage, and you want to unlock capital and invest it in other things. And what, what better way to do that than living with your art and getting liquidity from it in a way that doesn't mean selling it, doesn't mean parting with your objects. You're living with it still. You're living with it. You're not incurring kind of the tax that goes along with it. You get to use it almost as an arbitrage play to put that capital to work somewhere else. And so most of our collectors who are doing this either have a private equity or a hedge fund real estate project that they're working on. Some of our clients use it as, as dry powder or a working capital line for their business. And what does that mean? Break that apart really quickly for us. Sure. So as it relates to using the capital for private equity or hedge fund, you're using that just like any other line of credit as a way to put money into your fund without having to put cash up into your fund, um, right? You're just paying interest on on the line so that you can invest in, in higher yielding things down the line. And for our clients who want to use the line as dry powder, what that really means is that they can access liquidity at any time to oftentimes buy more art. So they can be opportunistic. And instead of saying, yeah, I need to keep $2 million in cash on the side. And at some point when I find the right piece, I'm going to use all of it to buy this work. They can instead draw down on their line, go to Christie's and Sotheby's at the end of this week for the mid-season sales and use that line to buy more works um, that they often then add into the collateral pool sure. in their collection, sometimes to you know, increase the amount of the line. That's a great segue to the secondary market. Let's talk auction houses. Um, of course, when working with an auction house to sell art, high-level curation is important. However, there is still the technical matter of how individual works end up in a sale, which is a major part of your work, correct? Yes. What makes a great package from an auction house or how do you select the right auction house for a sale? Ooh, that's such a fun question. Honestly, it's it often comes down to which house is most excited about the collection. So we work with a few different groups of objects. We have collectors who want to sell their entire collection through us with one of the auction houses. Sometimes that's a client who has completely changed course in their collecting journey Maybe they were really into impressionist and they want to start collecting emerging. Um, sometimes it's for a client who's passed away and we're selling their collection as part of an estate. And sometimes it's for a client who's aging and whose children aren't interested in what they've collected over the last several 
years and they're looking to sell. So we deal with all kinds of things. I'm sure and then, you see those kids jump on those collections real fast. <laughs> well, a lot of them have different tastes and preferences. I mean, we've seen the evolution of so many different sure. trends in the art world. Brown furniture being one of them. No one wants it anymore. And we've seen things come and go. So that happens and and that allows for the next generation to collect what they want. Of course. If they're interested in art collecting. So we bring those collections to auction. Beyond collections, we also deal with individual objects, right? Sometimes we have a client who has seen a big jump in price for a particular artist. They want to capitalize on it. Great. We can help them do that. And other times we've seen people take advantage of just a, a particular market that we're in. I mean, in the pandemic, we saw an amazing rise in luxury goods and collectibles. Baseball cards, which quite frankly, I knew nothing about. Now you um, do. Now I'm I sure. do. Uh, luxury handbags, which I knew a lot about. <laughs> and now I still do. Watches and you know, wine, classic cars, you name it. These things really popped during the pandemic. One, because they were very easy to buy and sell online. I mean, those were compared to buying blue chip work through an online platform, a, a much more palatable price point. And people were, quite frankly, bored, not spending money on, you know, vacations or other experiences. And they oftentimes bought collectibles to bring them a little moment of joy. Sure. It feels good. So we've been helping a lot of clients actually sell collectibles really for the last two plus years at this point. I don't know if I even knew that much about the collectible side of your job. That just sounds like so much fun. It's really fun. I mean, they're not things that we lend against through our art lending program, but we provide this ancillary service for clients. It helps us get close and kind of build deeper relationships with them. It oftentimes leads to bigger consignments down the line, you name it. But I always have fun with the, the luxury and collectible side of things. Speaking of client relationships, what are some of your favorite parts about developing these client relationships through their collections? I mean, we've gone through a really weird couple of years. We've managed to have, you know, phenomenal results during the pandemic. But, you know, one big shift, and, and this is, you know, true with anyone in the kind of client service industry, pre-pandemic and now, the ability to go into someone's home, even to meet them out for lunch, is a game changer. But I think, you know, one of the things that gives me the most insight into a collector, into their line of thinking, helps me build a relationship with them, is actually going to see the physical collection. So I'm really grateful that now, for now, <laughs> who knows how long this will last, we're able to go into homes again, see the art on their walls, see how people are living with them. You just like all of us were doing that via Zoom. Via Zoom? Uh, there's nothing worse than a collection tour on Zoom. I'm sure we've all sat through them. Oh, man. Yeah. I'm there's nothing worse than now. a studio visit via Zoom. Oh, that's true, too. And I there, did those. There's nothing worse than a Zoom. Let's there's nothing it. worse than a Zoom. I'm over it. Everyone's over it. Yeah. As someone extremely passionate about mental health, seeing a therapist is essential to my quality of life. 
we'd like to take this moment to announce how thrilled we are to partner with the world's largest therapy service, BetterHelp. If you think you might be feeling anxious, depressed, or even just overwhelmed, being alone with your thoughts can be an isolating feeling. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. It's that easy. Join the 2 million plus people who have taken charge of their mental health with an experienced BetterHelp therapist. And just for the Art Career podcast listeners, we will offer 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash T-A-C. That's better, B-E-T-T-E-R, help, H-E-L-P dot com slash T-A-C. Thanks again to BetterHelp for sponsoring the Art Career Podcast. Once a line of credit is structured against the art, I actually didn't know it it does stay on the collector's wall. It does. Yeah. So our clients, for the most part, live with everything that's in the collateral pool. It's great to see. Sometimes our clients lend out to museums, another aspect of art lending. And we love to see that as well. Traveling exhibitions, shows, you name it. Our clients lend out. But for the most part, it, it stays in their homes. So you're you're also working with major museums. We are. As the bank manage about 100 different arts institutions across the country, we also sponsor a lot of different shows across the world, as you can imagine. And we get to work very closely with the boards of those museums. That's such an exciting part of your job. I love. Bank of America referred to 2021 as the art market's recovery year. 2022, in your new reports, is the new frontier, correct? Yes, absolutely. Now, as galleries, art fairs, and biennials reopen and auction consigners regain confidence, the pandemic supply shock may be behind us. Hopefully, it's going to be behind us in the near future. In this new market cycle or new frontier, as you call it, your team expects a few macro trends to drive the art market to new heights. Let's talk about those a little bit. Going into this year, we were bullish on the art market, and we still are in some degree. I mean, we saw prices for art and luxury goods rise precipitously during the pandemic. We've seen inflation. We've seen historically low interest rates. And all of those things lead to a great wealth effect, which ultimately fuels the art market. And so going into the big sales in May, we're expecting them to do very well. We, I guess really with the November sales in 2021, started to see more supply come to the market. The art market was very supply constrained during most of the pandemic, and rightfully so. Many of our clients and other collectors that we know, we were a little bit hesitant to consign anything to auction, wondering how the pandemic would play out, if prices would 
realize where they wanted them. And so people kind of held off consigning anything big at auction. Of course, that changed with the Maclow sale at Sotheby's in November of 2021. The second part of that sale is coming up in May. And we're starting to see some other big blue chip works come up for auction. What a collection. Unbelievable. 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 But also, I mean, just to see all those works in person. That's right. Was so poignant as well. I think that was part, I mean, it it was the works, of course, but to just be in that space with such a deep collection. It, It really is poignant going back into a space filled with works like that in a post-pandemic world. I mean, that was going through Maclow in November was really the first time I'd seen art in mass mm-hmm. since, you know, everything happened in 2020. And it was amazing. And actually I was at Sotheby's last night for an event for their mid-season sales for Contemporary Curated. And it felt amazing. But seeing Maclow like that that type of supply coming to auction with that much confidence in the art market after kind of such traumatic events of the last couple of years was really special. And and we're looking forward to seeing how it performs in May as well. We are too. I think it's inevitable that we speak about the brave new digital world. I've seen a shift in my advisory, you know, over the past only been about six months now, but a couple of my biggest collectors, like, all right, Emily, I'm ready. Let's let's tap into those NFTs. You know, I oh mean, boy. that's yeah. <laughs> it's 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 happening, right? Like it or not, it's happening. Uh, with the surge of digitalization from the pandemic, art business margins are compressing, which can benefit collectors. How does this? digitalization make the art market more accessible and expand the collector base? Pre-pandemic, we talked constantly about how the next generation would evolve as collectors. And if you really look back, even to 2018, 2019, millennials weren't really into art collecting. Uh, Silicon Valley was not into art collecting. And my team had a lot of conversations around San Francisco as a market, around engaging millennials and Gen Z, and really trying to figure out how to connect with them. I mean, I'm a millennial. I'm interested in collecting, but a lot of people were not. And that changed drastically in the pandemic. And I think what did it was the digitization of the art world, which in some regards was a little digital. But the reality was in the pandemic, if you didn't become digital, you would die. And so galleries that were considering online platforms, they had no choice. Like the time was now. And we sped up that digitization by maybe decades. And I think it's led to an entirely new generation getting involved. The accessibility for millennials and Gen Z to participate in the art world I think is made entirely possible by the entire art world itself being online, galleries, auction houses, auctions, and more frequent auctions, more curated auctions, mm-hmm. um, buy now features online. And then of course, you know, we, we can't not talk about NFTs. Yeah. Speaking about how you engage with 
the younger collectors, that's at the forefront right now, like it or not. It is. It definitely is. In March of 2021, when the Beeple sale happened at Christie's, I spent a lot of time trying to wrap my head around what this thing was and why it sold for so much money and why there's inherent value in NFTs. And I spent a lot of time on Clubhouse, which was really popular for a, a hot second, and listening to you know, crypto investors, NFT investors, NFT artists kind of explain themselves. And that was kind of one stage of all of this. And there was a point where I hopped on a Zoom with the team at Christie's. And I said to them, do you believe that NFTs are the future of the art world? And they gave me a really interesting response, which I've actually carried with me into conversations about NFTs and art fairs and kind of the way I think about investing in an NFT, which is that if the physical art world is its own entity and it functions over here on the left, then NFTs are also its own entity and it functions over here on the right. Don't think for a second that NFTs are just going to take over the physical art world. Thank goodness. I think it was what we were all a little bit worried about at the beginning, but it's really become its own category. And I think that's how it exists in the space, how people can justify it. And really why we're seeing it pop up in parts of different art fairs, like at Art Basel. Thank you for that. I really love how Christie's really beautifully broke that down. And now I will carry that with me because it's it's a very simple and perfect description of what's happening. And in my career, one of my hats I wear is a art advisor, and they really do exist side by side. I mean, as soon as my clients began to be interested in NFTs, like that was never something that I was going to be doing on my own because I knew probably just as much about NFTs as you did in the beginning Very of little, this, right? Yeah. This isn't something I've been following for years and years and years, and I'm certainly not sitting on Discord all day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I hired two people that were very well informed that sit on Discord all day and follow everything that's happening in the NFT world. And that's just to reiterate that part of my advisory is so separate from me as a fine art advisor, but they can both exist within my advisory and that's okay. And I really loved how you and Christie's described the NFT world because you have so many people that are really getting caught up in the fear of NFTs taking over, you know, mm -hmm. and that's just never going to be the case. Well, never say never, but, but I, I don't think the physical art world is at risk of being usurped by NFTs anytime soon. Well, also... I would never be part of the art world if NFTs <laughs> took over the, you know, the physical Touché. art world. So you've touched upon this new crop of collectors. New collectors are using your services. How are you engaging with these younger collectors? I think NFTs are one aspect of something that 
drew in a younger crowd over the last couple of years, but it's definitely not the only thing. I go back to the digitization of the art world. I think these online platforms have really moved a new generation online engaging with us and collecting physical objects as well. So we're seeing a lot more people my age, a little older, a little younger. How old are you, Dana? I'm 31, (laughs) for those of you listening. So a little older, a little younger, who are starting to, you know, really build out collections and engage with us. And sometimes that's us, you know, recommending an art advisor. Sometimes that's us helping them with an existing art collection, either that they've built or their families have built. And also, you know, showing them interesting opportunities and events in the art world. I mean, that's how we met. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's so important that we have young women in your position right now that are paving the way. Working at a bank, which is primarily older white men, I'd just love to hear your feedback or advice for perseverance and growth within that space. I think it comes down to something very simple, although the task itself is certainly not simple. But in my mind, it's it's two things. One is confidence, confidence in yourself, confidence in the hustle, confidence in the notion that you'll get to go where you want to go and do what you want to do. And confidence is everything. And look, the second thing is really liking it. And if you can wake up in the morning and come out to Brooklyn and talk about art on a podcast with some cool people, you're very lucky. If you can wake up in the morning and go to a museum or a gallery or meet a client and see their collection, you're very lucky. So if you like it, that's that's the key, right? That's the key to it. It sure is. So this is obviously a very fun question for me. What are you seeing your clients collecting right now? And what part of that is turning you on the most? I keep a running list in my phone of artists I want to buy. So, you know, it's a never-ending shopping list (laughs) when I'm out with clients, which is fun. I think there are two big categories we can't seem to get away from. The first is obvious, especially for our clients. It's post-war and contemporary blue chip works in impressionist and modern blue chip works as well, but particularly post-war and contemporary, these big name artists with big prices, they're not going anywhere. They held up during the pandemic. Few came to the auction block for good reason to preserve value. And at the end of the day, those are kind of the staple pieces in our clients' collections. Beyond that, we cannot forget about emerging artists and particularly, you know, identity artists. We're seeing just an enormous shift. Well, we've seen an enormous shift over the last many years to the biography of the artist becoming increasingly important to what people are buying. And in particular, it's the biography of the artist kind of coming through in a figurative piece. So the works that we're seeing, you know, huge waitlist for in the primary market, the pieces that have low estimate at auction that are really flying, those are these figurative identity works painted by Black, Latina, female artists that tell the story of whatever figure is in the foreground. And we're seeing collectors continue to collect. I will say people have become wary 
of just the sheer number of figurative identity artists in the market. I think it's probably a good thing, not that the category is going away or becoming any less important, but we're seeing a higher bar and threshold for the artist to reach, not to be derivative, to keep the ball moving forward, to add something to the canon. I love that. Dana, this has been enlightening for me, and I know it will be for our viewers. I look forward to growing our relationship, and I can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on season one. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Art Career. If you get value from this podcast, please consider helping me make more of these episodes by becoming an Art Career Premium member at theartcareer.supercast.com. That's theartcareer.supercast.com s-u-p-e-r-c-a-s-t dot com and please don't forget to rate and review every rating counts thanks so much